0: Amen. You can turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Um, Matthew chapter 8. And we're continuing a a message that we cut in half last week. And uh, last week, as you remember. Um, We were talking about, uh, is there healing in the atonement? And uh, one thing, go ahead and put that slide up there, Spencer. Is there healing in the atonement? And we looked at the beginning here of of Matthew uh, uh, chapter 8, our section, beginning in verse uh, 16. And so I want to read for us Matthew 16, verse 22 uh, today. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon possessed and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying he himself bore our infirmities and bore our sick, took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and when Jesus saw a great multitude about him he gave a command to depart to the other side Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Um, Last week, one thing we looked at at the very beginning of that text was we talked about how In Jesus' time, even though all the miracles that he did, people flat out rejected him for the most part. We talked about his authority. We talked about the works and the purity and and the provision and the healing and all these things. And at at the conclusion of every one of those things, it says that the people were astonished at the works of Jesus. They were blown away by his teaching. They were blown away by his dominion over demons. They were blown away by the way he exacted his judgment They were blown away by his composure, his everything. And yet they continued to reject him. And we talked about how that basically was broken up into two responses people had at Christ. Either they flat out rejected him, as many did, because they were in love with their own sin. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says that the Pharisees, who basically hated him, And they love their way of doing things more than his way. And so that was the first group we kind of mentioned last week. And there was a latter group. And the second group that we looked at that followed Jesus that will put them in the category of thrill seekers. (laughs) They were just along for the ride. They saw this guy doing all this incredible stuff, and they thought, hey, we're going to get on this bandwagon real quick. And so in each group... Uh, the people who just flat out rejected him and the people that followed him because they wanted to see what great thing he was going to do next. Um, Our text this morning, beginning in in verse 18, uh, basically shows us several barriers that are in people's lives where they come to Christ and because they have a barrier there, Christ has to reject them. And so today I want to, the title is is basically So You've Accepted Jesus, but Has He Accepted You? See, somehow in our mind today in the church, we want to dumb down the gospel. We, we want to make the, the gospel to the point where, you know, you could, you could lead a, a two month old to Christ. <laughs> Do you see them nod their head? Yeah, they're, they're affirming Christ. They're saved. You know, and we take the gospel message and we dumb it down to a couple questions. And those questions are really, if you stop and you think about it, some of the questions we ask people when we're talking about the gospel to them things like, Do you know that God loves you? You stop and you think about that. You're telling somebody who's basically in love with themselves. <laughs> That's what the Bible says. Our hearts are desperately wicked and, and, you know, we're we're just all about ourselves in our lost state. You're telling somebody in that state of mind that's in love with himself, hey, you know what? Somebody else loves you too. God loves you. What's the response going to be to that? It's not going to be, oh, no way. It's going to be, well, yeah, why wouldn't he? (laughs) It appeals to their flesh. It appeals to their ego. And then we follow that up with, and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Hey, that's great. I have a wonderful plan for my life too. So Jesus, come on board and we'll just work out this plan together. And somehow people have been herded into following Christ and somehow they've been brought into the, quote, physical church to sit Sunday after Sunday, to hear message after message, thinking that somehow because they made some prayer or some raised them hand or sent in some card to some evangelist on TV, that somehow that is what saved them. And that's what they're holding on to. And it's unfortunate today that the church is filled with, as one person put it, unbelieving believers. <laughs> They'll acknowledge that Christ is the only way. They'll acknowledge that, yeah, you have to come through Christ. See, they're all about the narrow way. They're all about the the narrow gate. They understand that. When When we went through the Gospel of Matthew earlier on, we talked about how Christ implores us to enter through the narrow gate. And it implies that it's not easy to do so. That it's going to be difficult. And he said, there's also a broad gate, but don't go to that. That's where all the false teachers, that's where everybody else wants you. You can enter in the narrow gate. But see, we get that far and we can talk to people. And, well, do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Yes. Do you believe that he's the only way to salvation? Yes. They believe. And then you look at their life after they enter the narrow gate. And it's almost like they're living on the broad path. <laughs> see, the narrow gate, beloved, if you enter by the narrow gate, it leads to what? A narrow path, not a broad path. And so we have people that say, they affirm, yes, I'm saved, I do all this. And then you look at their life, and it's a mess. Nothing in their life depicts Christ at all, other than maybe they pop into church on a Sunday. That's about it. And how unfortunate is that? Because they're holding on to something, That may not be valid. And so today we want to look at three cases. Two here in Matthew and one in the Gospel of Luke. Three barriers that keep people from coming to Christ. Three barriers. The first one, go ahead and put it up there. The first one is personal comfort. Personal comfort. Now, it's interesting. When I was in Bible college, we had, now he's, I think he's still the, uh, the, the uh, president of Dallas. Um, he came and he spoke. He wasn't the president then, obviously. He was just kind of a new hireling there then. But uh, he came and spoke at our chapel. And he gave this outline. And I use this outline time and time again with young people because I thought it was kind of cute. And that's where the little Mr. Too Hasty comes in there. Because basically what he did is he took this, the, the gospel account of this text in Luke. And unfortunately, now I know the error of his ways. What he did was totally wrong. But he, he made a line of delineation between those who believe in Christ and those who actually are disciples of Christ. And so when he looked at the text in Luke, he said, now this isn't applying to salvation. This is applying to serving God. This is applying to being a disciple of Christ. And what his beliefs were, and I don't know if they've changed since then or not, Dr. Bailey from Dallas, but he believed that you could be a believer in Christ without being a disciple of Christ. In other words, you could have Jesus as your Savior, and he doesn't have to be your Lord. Clearly taught that. But I thought his outline was good, and I used it many times with youth, so... This first guy that we're going to see here, I call him Mr. Too Hasty because he was just too, too excited to follow Jesus. He didn't think it through. The first thing we see here is a change of scene in verse 18. It says, and when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. All right, the eastern shore of the lake there. That's where he wanted to go. Jesus and his disciples were on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, and they had just hordes of people around them. I mean, multitudes is just pressing in around them. And we talked last week about how, if, if authentic healing is really going on, okay, it doesn't necessarily take into account the person's faith or anything like that, like a lot of the people on TV today say, well, you weren't healed because of your faith. Jesus healed undiscriminately. He almost rid his land of any disease at all when he went around and healed. That's why so many people were flocking to him. It was incredible. And so all these people are pressing in around him. And you can imagine, I don't know if if Jesus was my kind of personality or not, but when I'm in a crowd of people Just being in a crowd of people just wears me out. I could, I could just sit there in a chair. And if there's all these people around, it just wears me out emotionally just to be there. I don't even have to talk. It's just, I don't know, it's just the way I'm geared. Much rather do one-on-one things like that. Big crowds, I just kind of repel from them. And all these people were just surrounding him and his disciples, and and the Lord was physically exhausted. Don't ever forget that Jesus was human, just like you and I are human. And yet he was still fully God. Somehow we kind of lose that. He was fully God, and yet he was fully human. And he was at a point of physical exhaustion. And he had to make a decision. What's, What's best here? Is it best for me to pull away from all these people, get alone, recuperate? Or is it best for me just to kind of burn myself out and just stay here? Because the people are just going to keep coming. Well, he showed the wisdom and it afforded the Lord the necessary time for prayer, for meditation. And rejuvenation physically from all these people crowding in around him and the pressures... We're not necessarily part of God's plan. And so he decided, you know what? I'm going to leave this place of ministry for a new place. It's just too many people here. And as he left, you can imagine, what do people want to do? They want to follow him. (laughs) They want to follow him. And by that time, many people were already following him. And so it left an issue of commitment with them. What are we going to do? Actually, the the gospel account of Mark almost indicates that there was kind of a flotilla of boats that followed Jesus in his boat out into the lake. And so people are on the edge of commitment. Jesus is getting in the boat. See you later. And he's pulling away from shore. And they're at the crux of their commitment. Am I going to follow him? Hey, can I get in your boat? See, that's that's where all this is taking place. He brought them right to the point of decision. And here in Matthew, we see two individuals, and over in Luke, we see the third. But the first person here, he introduces us to a scribe. It says in verse 19, Then a certain scribe came to him. A certain scribe came to him. This is the first man that appeared interested in following Jesus as he floated off. He's getting ready to float off. But this man never came to true salvation. And we're going to see that. And the reason is is basically he wanted his own personal comfort more than he wanted Christ. Now, this man, it says, was a scribe. The scribes basically are the authority on the law. They had the official sanction, you might call it, of the Jewish authorities to teach. And they were very highly educated people. They were very loyal to their system. And they, they most likely sided generally with the Pharisees most of the times. And so they were, they were not, you know, in Jesus' corner. They were opponents to Christ. And for those reasons, it was very unusual that a scribe would come up and say, Hey, teacher, I want to follow you. That was just really, really different. That was really odd. It'd be like having a Hollywood star coming to your church and saying, Hey, I want to get saved. That doesn't happen every Sunday. Or a liberal professor in a university. That doesn't happen. Well, they were impressed with that. And you look at how he addresses Christ. He says, teacher, all right, rabbi, teacher. It's a very uh, kind of a uh, official designation that he's he's giving to Christ. He was obviously impre- impressed with Christ's teaching ability, being a teacher himself. The Bible says that when men saw Christ teach, they said, no man can do this. This is incredible, the way he teaches so he was obviously impressed. And he says, Master, or a teacher, that kind of just drips of dedication. And he says, I'll go, I'll follow you wherever you go. Pretty bold statement, don't you think? I think that's a pretty bold, you you look at that on the surface and you go, man, this guy is dedicated. This guy is incredibly, he's willing to follow Jesus wherever he's going to go. It almost sounds like he's making a permanent commitment. It sounds like he's willing to do whatever it takes. And he thought, Jesus, man, as a teacher, I want to follow this guy. Because he is just a great teacher. See, he was attracted to Christ by this unique and impressive person, the power of Christ. That's what attracted this man. And you know what? If he probably showed up in our churches today, man, we'd sign him right up. And guess who came to our church? Yeah, wanted to get saved and everything. We'd be excited. You can imagine the disciples. This guy is a scribe, Jesus. Think about it. Finally, they're breaking down. They're starting to fall into the fold. This is great. Most of his kind are in the opposition. But this guy's willing to follow wherever we go. He was very eager. He was very hasty in his commitment. Look at what Jesus says to him. I mean, it's kind of mind-blowing when you understand what he's saying. In, in verse 20, Jesus turned and said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Can you see his disciples? Uh, Jesus, run that by us again? What, what? Foxes, birds, where, what, what are you talking about? Don't you understand? This guy wants to follow us. He wants to become part of the group. See, this is what they call a proverbial saying. And and what Jesus is saying is very simple. He's saying, you know what? You want to follow me? You have to understand something. I'm not even going to have the basic comforts afforded to a fox or to a bird. I'm not going to have those basic comforts. John 7.53 and over in, in John 8.1 it says, every man went unto his own house. But Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives. See, the implication is he didn't have a house. <laughs> he didn't have a place to lay his head. In Luke chapter 8, verse 2 and 3, there's a listing of some of the, the ladies of Jesus' day who were just kind of part of his ministry and they were him and his disciples stayed at this house in Bethany because he had nowhere else to stay he was a guest in somebody's house the son of God he obviously had very few possessions and what he was doing was he was turning to the scribe and say look pal if you're looking for personal comfort you're looking in the wrong place He couldn't give this man any kind of guarantee of personal comfort. And even more than that, Jesus was able to read his mind. And Jesus forced him to face the unpleasant reality of discomfort. Although the scribe was probably thinking, hey, you know what? Man, Jesus, I'm, I'm full, I'm rich, I'm a great teacher, all this stuff. And I just want to add you to my life. I just kind of will put you on top like a cherry on top of a sundae. And Jesus says, no, not so fast. I don't operate that way. I'm not here to be popular. I'm not here to be something that's added to your life. See, that's not what salvation is. We don't take Jesus and add him to our life. The only way to come to Christ is wholeheartedly, is without reservation, is to come and say, you know what? I have nowhere else to go. To come with a broken heart, repentant over the sin that's in your life. To come before a holy God, as we sang this morning, who first of all, we need to acknowledge as our creator and holy God, and then our savior. And then he can be our friend. See, somehow... We bypass the first two and hey Jesus wants to hang out with you he's your buddy he wants to just wants to be your pal well here Jesus didn't want to be this guy's pal <laughs> he flat out refused him just in what he said I heard a prosperity preacher who's very entertaining on the t- television last week, and uh it was funny what he was saying but Part of it was you know, funny and part of it was really sad because he was talking about his prosperity and he was making the point that, you know what, people say that Jesus was poor. No, he wasn't. And he talked about the donkey that he rode on. And he talked about why would the soldiers gamble for rags at the cross unless they were Expensive, and they were made of the finest linen, and you know that's why I wear good suits. And he went on and on. I mean, talk about a misinterpretation. Well, this scribe was coming to Christ for the wrong reason. In, in John two, after he had done many miracles in Jerusalem, here's what the text says in John two verses twenty three to twenty five. It says, "Many believed in his name, talking of Christ." And then it says this, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them. Isn't that interesting? It says many believed in his name. But on the other hand, Jesus did not commit himself to them. Wonder why that is. It goes on and it says, because he knew all men. And needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in the heart of man. He knew what was in the heart of man. See, what Jesus was pointing out to them is that He had no faith in their faith. <laughs> well, you believe in my name? Well, I don't have faith in your faith to believe in my name. Because He knew it was only superficial. He knew they were just thrill-seeking. They were just after another miracle. A matter of fact, in the parable of the sower... He classified these kind of people as the seed that immediately springs up. Looks like there's life there, but then as soon as the sun hits it, it's scorched and it has no root. And it dies, it withers right away. See, there are people within the church that want to jump on the, quote, Christian bandwagon. But as soon as the hard times come, as soon as any, any, any persecution comes, I mean, we don't have an idea what persecution is, beloved. We have no idea what persecution is in this country. We think somebody cracks a a joke about Christians at the water cooler and, oh, I was crucified or I was, you know, persecuted today. (laughs) That's nothing. We don't have a clue. But as soon as any of that stuff starts, well, then they're not comfortable anymore. And they pull back. They want out. See, this scribe was captivated by Jesus, by his talents, by his gifts, by his teaching ability. But Christ knew that his heart and his human nature was fickle and it was self centered. He was coming for his own selfish purposes. He knew that this man was hungering after just sensations, after crowds and miracles and all the excitement. There's a quote by Lenski. You can put it up there on the screen. He says this, talking about this man. He sees the soldiers on parade, and he sees the fine uniforms, and he sees the glittering arms, and he's eager to join. But forgetting the exhausting marches, forgetting the bloody battles, forgetting the graves, even perhaps unmarked. See, this man was too hasty to follow Christ. He had a shallow eagerness, and it's like that seed on stony ground that quickly grows, but it just dies under the heat of persecution. Apparently, the man never understood the basic elements of any discipleship. It's self-denial. It's suffering. That's what Christ says over and over again in the Word. And somehow after Jesus told the scribe what he could expect, if you're looking for comfort, pal, you're looking in the wrong place. Wow. Verse 21. Then another. (laughs) Where did this guy go? He's not around anymore. One commentator said, yeah, he must have left somewhere in the white space between verse 20 and 21. He just beelined it out of there. The cost was too great. The Lord put him under the spotlight and he left. That's so unlike us. That's so unlike us as the modern church. I mean, we try to sugarcoat the message of the gospel so that anybody can believe it just so that we can have more people in a church or make our ego feel better or whatever we're trying to do. But Jesus told it like it was. And in doing so, what He did was He kept a lot of insincere people from following Him. Unless their commitment was genuine. That's so important to understand. I like that phrase in verse 20. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. See, Jesus affirmed that he was the Son of Man, and it's a messianic title that first appears in Daniel 7:13. It's used in the Gospels nearly 88 times, to describe Christ. That term, the Son of Man," it's really a term that's used to describe his humility. To describe his humanness. When you want to speak of the deity of Christ, you call him the what? The son of God. Not the son of man. But here Christ is pointing out, hey, this is going to be a hard road. This is a road of humiliation. I don't even have a place to lay my head. The foxes, the birds are better off than I And he was saying, in my humble estate, I don't have the basic comforts that my father affords to foxes and birds. And if you're going to follow me, and once again, this is for salvation, this isn't for service. If you're going to follow me, if you're going to come to me as the Christ, you better be willing to give them up. New Testament makes it clear over and over again in Matthew 10. In verse 16 and following, it says, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. (laughs) That sounds comforting. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils. And they will scourge you in their synagogues. And you shall be brought forth before governors and kings. And they will deliver you up. Be not anxious what you shall speak, for it shall be given to you in the same hour what you shall speak. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But when they persecute you in this city, flee into another. Something that's going to happen. It's not an option. Over in John fifteen and sixteen, two chapters, fifteen twenty, Jesus said, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And he says in chapter sixteen, verses one and two, these things I've spoken unto you that you should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. The time is coming that whosoever kills you will think that they are doing God's service. In the world, you will have tribulation. See, sometimes we get offended at the silliest things. And Jesus is saying, why do you think unbelievers would treat you any other way? They're not going to welcome you with open arms. Oh yeah, come and tell us how we're lost in our sin and on our way to hell. Well, that's a message we want to hear and that we can't help ourselves. <laughs> People don't like to hear that message. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul writes... Yes, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Matthew five, verse eleven Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all evil of uh manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Hebrews chapter eleven, verse thirty eight, there's a whole list of heroes of the faith there, and it says, Of whom the world was not worthy. They were tortured, they were killed. See, there's a price to pay for being a Christian. But the scribe, obviously, wasn't willing to pay it. He just wanted to add the excitement of Jesus onto his bandwagon of life and go happily down the road. The scribe was even maybe a potential Judas. Jesus knew what was in his heart. And we don't need any more of those kinds. So when Jesus explained to him, this is how it's going to work, pal, you're going to follow me, you're going to come after me, well, guess what? I don't even have a place to lay my head. It drove him away. It drove this man away. We have a hard time with that. Can you imagine someone coming to our church and saying, hey, you know what? I want to get saved. I want to get saved. What do we want to do? First thing is, well, let's pray. Let's pray. Here, I'll lead you in this prayer. Just follow me. And I, you know, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. Okay. There, now, thank God, praise God, you're saved. Is it that easy? It could be. If their heart is sincere, if their heart is broken, if they're genuine. But it can also be a big facade. It could also be an emotional response to something. It could be a myriad of things other than genuine faith. There's nothing wrong if somebody comes into our church. I want to get You know what? Hey, hold on. Why? Why do you want to get saved? Pretty basic question maybe we should ask. And then even after, maybe they give the right answer. You know? I mean, we need to explain things to them. We need to explain it in a way that a a child could come to Christ. That's true. It's faith, but it's got to be faith that comes from God. It's not our own faith. It's God who gifts us, who transforms our lives, who gives us that ability to believe in Him. Here Jesus drove this man away because he knew he wasn't up for the task. He knew his personal comforts would get in the way of coming to Christ. It's no different than if you were going to go explore some big mountain somewhere. It sounds kind of exciting. I'd, hey, I'd sign up for something like that. That'd be great, going on a big trip. And do, and then the guy starts to explain to you, yeah, well, you know, we got to walk through the jungle first to get to the mountain in 110 humidity with bugs and all sorts of crazy animals and everything. And then after that, there's no showers at all. You can't take a shower for days. I'd be out right there. That would be over. I just said I wouldn't go. Okay. Because I need my showers. But, you know, that's my little personal comfort God in my life. (laughs) We all have different things. But see, we have to count the cost. Are you willing to make the sacrifice that Christ spells out? It's no different than an athlete in high school saying, man, I want to I be part of the NFL one day. I be. Well, you know what? The coach isn't going to say, hey, great, follow your dreams. No, they're going to say, are you willing to pay the price? Do you know the, the percentage of somebody who actually falls into that is so slight? I mean, you're going to have to sacrifice. And you hear about these kids who are going to the Olympics as swimmers and stuff. And you hear about their schedule. Yeah, I get up at 3 in the morning and I'm in the pool by 4 a.m. And I swim until 8. And then i got to go to class. And then I'm back at noon and I swim another two hours. And then I come back at night and I swim for another three to four hours. And then in between I'm in the gym training. Extreme Sacrifice. See, we do Christ a grave disservice when we lead people to believe that the Christian way is the, quote, easy way. It's not. Don't get me wrong, there's no thrill like following Christ. There's no glory that, that, that can compare at the end of your life when you look back on your life and you live the life of obedience before God. I mean, it's just, he gets the glory, we don't. But see, all along the way, you have to pick up the cross. You have to be willing to pay the price. You have to be willing to follow him. People who want their personal comfort plus Christ merely want to add Jesus to their life. They want to add Jesus to their established pattern of life. They don't want to change that much. I've actually heard people who've come to Christ, you know. Well, I don't want to get all religious or anything. I mean, I don't want to turn into one of those Jesus freaks. And I always say, well, I don't know what you mean by that. <laughs> he refused him. Look at the second person. In verse 21, Matthew 8 another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go bury, let go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Whoa. Sounds reasonable. Look at his words here. It says in another of his disciples, uh, don't. Don't to go too uh, crazy with that word. You know, sometimes we look at that word disciple and we think, well, yeah, that, that must be a believer. No. A disciple simply means someone who is following someone, who is desirous to emulate their life, to follow after them. In, in authentic discipleship, there's a tremendous cost involved. But there's also people who just follow for the good time. So another one of his disciples, another one of his followers, said unto him, Lord, first let me go bury my father. I mean, the son couldn't just, you know, poor dad's home dead, and he's just going to leave and follow Jesus? That wouldn't be right. Seems like a reasonable request. being Jewish, they didn't believe in embalming and all that. So when someone died, you had to do it pretty quick. You had to bury them pretty quickly. And, and, and even beyond that, in Jewish custom, they really taught that one had to mourn for your father and your mother for 30 days after they died. That was just part of their culture. And it's still there today, days of mourning. The book of Genesis tells us that it's the final responsibility of a son out of an act of devotion to his parents to make sure that they are cared for in their burial. So maybe he's talking about a month to mourn, and you know, hey Jesus, you know I know, I know you're leaving here on the boat, but you know I can't. Dad, i got to go bury my dad, so i uh, catch up with you later. <laughs> What's interesting here, because the son's request is really what they call a colloquial phrase, and it appears over in the Middle East, even today. Uh, there, there's a story of a missionary who was over in Turkey, and he met this young Turkish um, man, and, and he wanted this young turkey wanted him to go on this tour of, of Europe after he was done with his school. And so he asked the, the young boy, kind of like a disciple, hey, you, you, you want to go with me on this tour? Uh, you know, you'd be more than welcome and everything. And the, the son said, well, you know, I'd love to, but uh, I have to bury my dad first. And so the missionary immediately, you know, I'm sorry, you know, I, I, didn't, you know, I didn't know he passed away, how, how you know, uh, wrong of me to, you know, whatever. And, and, and the, the, uh, the the son goes, oh, no, 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 and he misunderstands. he's not dead yet. Just as the son, I have a responsibility to be here. He's not even near dead yet. So this is something that continues even to this day. And what he's really saying here, Because Jesus was looking at his heart. Jesus knew that the son's dad wasn't dead yet. What this man is implying is, you know what? I just kind of want to hang out here a little while longer. Dad's getting up in age and, you know, uh, he's not dead yet, but when he dies, I'm getting a pretty big inheritance. (laughs) And, you know, there's no way I'm walking away from that. I've, you know waited all this time, so I'll catch up with you after uh, I bury my father. He's probably justifying it. They don't have the money. We can help. You know, you will have a place to lay your head, Jesus, then. You know, we can stay in the finest hotels because i got a pretty good inheritance coming. So you just go ahead and I'll, I'll catch up with you later. He was too hesitant. His personal riches drew him more than Christ drew him. That's where he was coming from. But when you look at Jesus' response, it almost doesn't even make any sense. He looks at him, he says, follow me. And what? Let the dead bury their own dead. When's the last time you saw a dead person burying a dead person? Doesn't happen. So the solution here to this little phrase, what he's really communicating to us is that let those who are spiritually dead bury the dead. You have a higher calling because in Luke 9:60 he says, and you go and preach the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus is saying, let the spiritually dead bury their own physical dead people. Let the secular world deal with this. This isn't a spiritual issue. You've been called to be part of the kingdom of God. And you're functioning at the wrong level. Let the system take care of itself. Now, Jesus wasn't saying here that Christians are forbid to go to funerals or you know anything like that. Obviously, he would want us to give our parents a proper burial and all that. What he's addressing here is the man's priorities who were so far out of whack, he couldn't even see it. And what he was doing was he was stressing secular matters over spiritual matters. Somehow, these personal possessions were important to him. And as a result, somewhere he left In the white space, once again, between verses 22 and 23, turned away. Minds, if you look over in Matthew chapter 19, where it talks about the rich young ruler, we know this story, Matthew 19, verse 16 Says to me, whole one came unto him, said, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I can have eternal life? And Jesus goes on, he says, So why do you call me good? They have this discussion. No one is good but one that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said which And he said to him which ones? Jesus said, "You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery." He recites those. A young man said to him, "All these things I've kept since my youth. Hmm. What do I still lack? And look at what Jesus says in verse twenty-one. Okay, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be part of my kingdom. Go sell what you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. That seems kind of weird. Do you get saved by selling your possessions? Is that what Christ is saying? No. But you know what? If money and materialism and all that is standing in the way, it has to go. It has to go. See, money distracts a lot of people. Materialism distracts a lot of people. No one's going to get saved by selling all their possessions and just giving money to the poor. Then all of a sudden God's going to look down, okay, now you're saved. But he wants to get all that stuff out of the way so that a person can get saved. It can really prevent a person from being committed to Christ and therefore entering his kingdom. That's what he's trying to point out. And the rich young ruler claimed that he kept all the law. Well, he must have been lying. Because he wouldn't have the God of money in his life if he knew that he was keeping all the law. The first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your money. <clears throat> he obviously wasn't fulfilling that. There was an obstacle that stood between him and his faith, and that was his possessions, his money. And look at what he says in verse 22, but when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He was sorry he couldn't get in the kingdom without holding on to his money. He wanted to bring it with them. It's kind of a silly thing, but people are like that. It's sad that personal comforts and personal riches will actually keep someone from following Christ, but it happens all the time. They may be initially attracted to Him, but then they discover the price of commitment that's involved, and they walk away, and they're lost forever to an eternity in hell. Well, there was a third individual, and to find that individual, we need to turn over to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, Matthew just leaves this guy out for some reason. Luke Luke chapter 9, and beginning looking at verse 61 and 62, basically all three of them are listed here, but we're just going to look at the last one. Verse 61, another one also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who were at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Wow. You mean this guy just can't go home and say, see, I'm going to follow Jesus. I mean, Jesus is being pretty hard here. What he did is he, pop, he, he, he cited a popular proverb, and basically the proverb says you can't plow a straight furrow when looking backward. My brother's a farmer, and I remember when I was younger in, in high school, I went out for a summer on his farm, and he was showing me, you know, what he does and different things. And I remember he was plowing this big long field, and I asked him, and this is before I was even a Christian. I said, "How do you?" You know, when you're up in an airplane, you see everything is so perfect. All these lines are just perfectly plowed. I said, how do you get it so perfect? I mean, I'm afraid if I plowed it, it'd be, you know, it'd, it'd look like some psychedelic thing from an airplane all over the place. And he said, well, what you got to do? You get in the tractor, you get to the end of the field, and you pick out a mark all the way down on the other end. It may be a mile or two down the thing. It could be a tree. It could be a pole. It could be a house. And you line it up with something on the hood of that tractor, and you just keep that thing lined right up. So as long as you keep it lined up, you're paying attention, you're looking forward, you're not goofing around, you're not paying attention, you'll plow a straight line. And sure enough, that's what this is saying. And what Jesus was doing here, he was pointing out that this young man was really more attached to his parents than he was to Christ. See, he's not talking about his wife and kids when he's going home here. He's talking about going home and saying goodbye to, to mom and dad. And he knew the influence that they would be on him. And he wanted to still be dependent upon the influences of his parents. And he knew, Christ knew that, you know what, that would get in the way. Don't even go back there. You follow me. I mean, you know, that's not such a far-fetched thing. There's a lot of people like that, even today. There's a lot of people who would come to Christ, but they're afraid maybe what their family would say, what their friends would say. They don't want to be alienated. So they stay in the false religion that maybe they were raised in, even though maybe they are Christian because they don't want to upset the family. See, they put the family over Christ. And, And such people, they're trying to plow a furrow that's straight while they're looking backwards and it's not going to work. And so Christ has to point that out to him. I heard on the radio this past week an illustration, and I tried to find it and I couldn't find it, so I'm just going to kind of generalize it. This pastor was talking about one of the martyrs who basically was going to be martyred for his faith in Christ. And came down to the night, the day before his, uh, he was going to be hanged and um they allowed his wife to come in and ask you know what would you want to eat for your last meal I'll cook you whatever you want and he said well it seems kind of not worthwhile for you to do that but you know that's fine so she cooked him his last meal and they shared that together and she was really broken hearted over The fact that her husband was going to be martyred the next morning. He was going to walk to the gallows. And this man turned to his wife. And here's what he said. He said, don't cry for me. He goes, I'm going to walk to those gallows with just as much joy and gladness in my heart as the day I walked down the aisle and married you. Excuse me. He goes, because I'm going to die for my Savior, and I love my Savior. See, our love for our loved ones is on a whole different level. It should be on a whole different level when it comes to our love for our Lord. And that's hard. That's hard to deal with sometimes. You know, don't tell me that, when, you know... When Christmas is over and the grandkids are going back to Florida, I don't wish I could get on a plane and go back there and live with them. I miss them. I miss them terribly. Do you know what? That doesn't even come in comparison to my love for, for the Lord. And so sometimes you've got to make hard decisions. In Matthew 10, verses 34 and 37, Jesus said this. Talk about priorities. He says, think not that I came to send peace on earth, but I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man at variance against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be those of his own household. He that loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. This is Christ speaking. And he that loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. See, even if devotion to one's parents holds you back from full commitment to Christ, then you know what? It's a problem. It's an issue. You're not going to enter the kingdom of God. It's not talking about Christian service here, beloved. It's talking about salvation. You can't get saved with those kind of priorities that demand more of your devotion than Christ demands. Jesus offered nothing to this young man who refused to commit his whole heart to him. He didn't offer him anything. There's nothing he could say because, see, when you come to Christ, either you come with everything or don't bother coming at all. There's no half in, half out, you know, do the hokey pokey and shake it all about. That's not going to happen. It doesn't work that way. Christ demands our whole hearted commitment Not personal relations, not personal riches, not personal comfort should stand in the way of us following our Lord and Savior. Christ did say in John 6, verse 37, those who come to Him and I will no wise cast out. He will not accept those who have no intention of making a true commitment. Because down in verse 53 of the same chapter, Jesus says, Except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoa! What's He saying? Either you take all or nothing. There's no half-hearted Christian. We hear this all the time. Well, you know, this Christian's just backslidden or this, you know, we invent all these terms. Either you're in Christ or you're not. Either your life depicts that you're in Christ or it doesn't. There's no gray area. Does that mean if you're in Christ, you're going to be perfect? No. We all have faults. We all sin in a myriad of ways, probably daily. But that's where we fall back on our commitment to God's grace, His forgiveness, and we cry out to Him, Be merciful again to me, O Lord, a sinner. They weren't willing to make the full commitment. So He turned them down. The one who comes to Jesus... He will not reject if he comes with the attitude that we found in the, in the Beatitudes when we were going through, with a Beatitude attitude, with a begging in the Spirit, with a mourning over his sin, with a meekness before a holy God, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, crying out for mercy, being willing to be persecuted, hated and reviled even for his name's sake. He won't reject that kind of commitment. But they weren't willing to make that kind of commitment. And so he turned them down. He won't cast you out if you come to him on his terms. See, today, the gospel is anything but the gospel. Everybody's coming to Jesus to have their felt needs met. One commentary had this illustration. I'll just read it. The master came to the slave one day and he said. You have a joy and you have a happiness that I wish I had. What is it? And the slave looked up and he said, it's Jesus Christ to his master. I want the Christ that you have, the master said. And the slave said, then go back to your house, put on your white suit and come down here and work in the mud with us and you'll meet him. Master shook his head. I won't do that. That's beneath my dignity. Well, a year later, he came back to the slave. And he was in deeper problems than he was the year before. He stood over the slave and he said, I want what you have. And the slave said, what I have is Jesus Christ. How can I know Christ like you do? Really wanted to know. Slave looked up and he says, Go back to your house. Put on your white suit and come down here and work with us in the mud and you'll meet him. The master said, I'm not going to do that. He walked away. In desperation, sometime later, this master came back a third time. I have to have what you have. He says, Well, you know how. Go get on that white suit. And you come down here and you work in the mud with us. And you'll meet them. And the master said, you know what? I'll do it. I'll do it. And the slave replied, you know what? You don't have to. You don't have to. I said, what do you mean I don't have to? You've been telling me this. You just have to be willing to. That's all. See? The Lord may not want to take your, away your personal comforts. The Lord may not want to take away your personal possessions. He may not even want to deal with your personal relationships. But you know what? You have to be willing to let him if he wants to. See, that's an affirmation of the lordship of Christ in your life. If you come to him saying, I am going to come, but I'm hanging on to this and I'm hanging on to that. And this, you're coming with half a heart. That doesn't cut it. But if you offer him everything, he'll most likely allow you to keep a portion of it. He may give you even more than what you had before. Quote by William MacDonald says, They left Christ to make a comfortable place for themselves in the world and to spend their rest of their lives hugging the subordinate. Are you his disciple? Have you counted the cost? Are you a true disciple, a true believer, a true follower of Christ? Have you looked at the evidence? As we saw last week people marvel at Jesus' authority, his words, his actions, his wisdom, his purity, his truthfulness, all those things. They marveled. And they, they, they've been overwhelmed. They were astounded. But you know what? All of them walked away lost. because they didn't come to him on his terms. One last quote. Bishop Ryle said this, The saddest road to hell is the one that runs under the pulpit, past the Bible, and through the middle of warnings and invitations. I hope this morning, I pray that you hear what the Spirit of God is saying to your heart. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you That sometimes your word is hard, but Lord, it's out of love that that hardness comes. Lord, we pray that you would bring to bear in our lives the truth that we heard this morning. Lord, help us to be a people who know how to cut the cord with the system and let the secular world have its own. We're called to live in a different standard. We're called to live in a different kingdom. Help us to live for the eternal. Help us to go and to preach the kingdom, the true gospel of Christ to a lost and dying world. Help us to know the priorities that we should have. Lord, give us the willingness to give up everything that we have, knowing full well that you may give it back to us. and You may even give more back to us than we've ever dreamed of. That's the kind of attitude that we need to come to you this morning. Lord, may there be no disciples here who walk away from Christ because of personal comfort or because of personal possessions or personal relationships. Father, we pray that we might be thinking now how your spirit applies this to our own lives. If there's any here who have yet to put their faith and trust in Christ, I pray that they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Show me your ways. Give me the repentance of the desire Lord, I yearn for your forgiveness, your grace in my life. You come to him broken, he'll answer that prayer. He'll transform you. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, amen.